0: Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word.
1: Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition... I want to make our listening audience aware of not only the books that I have authored, but some articles that I have written that you might be interested in and tell you how to access them. Over the years, I have done a good deal of writing, as time allows, to prepare resources that I think should be helpful to my congregation and also helpful to you, our listeners. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says articles. If you will open that with your cursor, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, one of the most recent articles was my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice after all, That has all been a misunderstanding. Well, there will be others, but I mention those three. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We come to Hebrews chapter 4, 14. We were in the midst of that passage when our time expired in the last program the author writes since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet this important distinction yet without sin let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer to the Hebrews is telling these struggling young Christians that this struggle of faith in our lives is not an unequal battle for us in our weakness. God has provided not only for our justification in Christ, but also our sanctification That process whereby those of us who are declared righteous on the basis of faith are also made righteous by the work of the Holy Spirit. When he says that we have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, no less than Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast our confession. Every Jew understood that language. The high priest was the one who alone entered symbolically into the presence of God for the people of Israel to make annual atonement for them, and to make intercession to God, for God's people. Now, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we believers have not only a high priest, but the author's point is, for any who are tempted to retreat from Christianity back into Judaism, and some were tilting that way, he wants to emphasize that we have one infinitely greater than those of the sons of Aaron. You see, our high priest is no less than Jesus, the Son of God. It doesn't get any better or any higher than that. So, he is saying, let no Hebrew Christian ever imagine that in the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron, that he had an institution at which a Jewish Christian could look back on as a loss. No way. In Jesus, we have a great high priest, an exalted personage, for whom there is no earthly peer. Not a son of Aaron, but the unique son of God. So, his appeal is, hold fast your confession of him. Our faith could not possibly attach to a greater being. Note again that faith is a choice. Hold fast our confession. It's not a human condition. God will preserve it, my friends, but it'll always turn out in the end that the faith that God upholds will in every case be a confession that we saints exercise due diligence to hold fast. God saves and keeps his elect, yet God accomplishes his saving work in such a way as to prompt and assure that we his elect do what is necessary to keep ourselves. The author calls Christ Jesus here to accentuate his shared humanity alongside his divine sonship, Jesus, the Son of God. Now in verse 15, he says, We do not have a high priest who cannot be sympathetic with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We must not think that a being so transcendent as the Son of God, now in heaven itself, is so distant, so far removed from us, or so unlike us, that he is unable to identify with our human frailty and to represent us before God the Father in heaven. Just the opposite. He is not one who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but he's one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That should be a comfort to us believers who are surrounded by weakness in this sinful flesh. We are beset by temptations. But just to know that we have in heaven itself a great high priest, one who knows our frame, One who understands that we are dust. One who is sympathetic with our human frailty. It is so comforting, at least it is to me, to know that in Christ Jesus we have one who has entered into our humanity, though not entered into our sins. One who knows our limitations experientially. One who is sympathetic toward us. Now that does not mean that Christ approves our failings. It does not mean that he winks at our sins but at least it lifts me to know that he knows my frame and he does understand. The reason Jesus is sympathetic is because he has, quote, been tempted in all things as we are. Yet the author knows without committing sin, that is, without surrendering to temptation. Our high priest knows the territory that you and I live in. In the course of his earthly ministry, Jesus was exposed to every testing imaginable in principle. I mentioned that the Greek verb for temptation, parazo, also means testing. God tests the world the flesh and the devil tempt. A test just presents to us a hard choice, a why in the road, where one direction is the easy way out or the way that gratifies the flesh, and the other is the direction that God wills. But that other direction is one at which the flesh always balks. Box because it is hard, because it denies the flesh its appetites. As the Holy Spirit pulls one one way, and the devil tries to pull us in another direction, every test becomes a temptation, and every temptation is a test. Hence, one Greek word serves both meanings. As the two, testing and temptation are always present in the same event. I always like to say God and the devil come through the same window. One to test, one to tempt. The only difference between Jesus' temptations and ours is this. You see, Jesus had no internal corruption. He had no handhold that the devil could get hold of. He had no lust to which the devil could appeal. There was no wickedness resident in Jesus' humanity. There was weakness because it was humanity. For example, Jesus, like us, got hungry, thirsty, tired, and lonely, just as any human being. The devil tempted him an amount of temptation at the point of hunger, for example. Jesus was tempted as were Adam and Eve, except the enemy was unsuccessful in taking down the second Adam. But what we know is that there is no temptation, no testing known to man, that at least in principle our Lord did not face and defeat. He emerged from every test unstained by any moral or spiritual failure. And if that fact might seem to you to make him less able to be sympathetic, remember this. The person who best understands the weight of any burden is not the person who drops the burden, but the one who endures it to the finish. The person who best understands the ordeal of caring for a helpless loved one is not the person who starts and bails, but the one who finishes. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to be for us a faithful and sympathetic high priest. For that reason, verse 16, we can count on his sympathetic intercession for us in heaven. So the author to Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're struggling, my friend, don't draw back. That's what he's saying to these Hebrew Christians. But draw near. Turn to him in prayer. For in Christ we have blood-bought throne rights. In our great high priest, we have a direct line to heaven itself, a sort of cosmic 9 And because we are his blood-bought brethren, because Jesus stands before God the Father as not only our high priest, that is, our sympathetic mediator, but because his person doubles as our atoning sacrifice, you and I can draw near with confidence or with boldness to the throne of grace. That is, with confidence in the sympathetic and faithful reception of our petitions, we can come before him in full assurance of our license to come before the throne as blood-purchased members of the family of God in Christ Jesus. There's a story that I've often told of an escapade with a couple of my seminary friends when I was a first-year student. These guys were older. One of them was later the president of Westmont College. When I was a first-year student in seminary, as I recall, the Sheridan Hotel was a new landmark. It was a sort of intimidating place for a small-town young man like myself. I was unaccustomed to the high-toned ways of the big city. We invaded space off-limits to all except personnel. We put on a brave face, but inwardly, we had no confidence or, you know, we had no right to be there, and had the right person encountered us, or maybe I should say the wrong one, and called us on our trespassing, we would have been unceremoniously and unsympathetically ushered from the hotel premises. About 12 years ago, or maybe a little more, we were in Egypt. My wife was just dead tired. We'd had an all-night train ride from Upper Egypt, And our rooms weren't ready when we got back to the Hotel Ramesses, the Hilton Ramesses in Cairo. Well, we didn't have a sympathetic reception at the hotel, and we couldn't make a request for a little slack with confidence in that situation. But had we been relatives of the management, things would have been different, wouldn't they? Aussie wanted to sleep on a couch outside the Ramesses Hilton restaurant, but they weren't too happy with that. But had she known the management, she would have received better than she asked or thought. Well, we Christians are members of the royal family, and through Christ in heaven, our petitions are welcomed as such. So whatever it is we need, we can draw near, the author tells us with confidence, not because of who we are, but who he is and where he is and what he has done for us. He is our high priest, and he doubles as our offering so that we can come before God covered in His blood. The author does not say, draw near to God. He says, to the throne of grace. His language underscores not merely the fact that in making our petitions, we have in Christ, our great high priest, the right approach to the throne. But the language emphasizes the fact that because of our relationship to Christ, we can expect grace. It is a throne from which the grace or the unmerited favor of God freely flows to us in our time of need. Not because of who we are. It is grace, after all. But when we offer up our supplications to heaven, we receive mercy and grace because of what He is and what He has done. We reiterate, we all must avail ourselves and our human weaknesses of this privilege to approach the throne of grace. We need to that we may receive mercy that we may find grace to help in time of need. My, how reassuring that clause is. The very language pulsates with comfort for the weak, the struggling, and the sinful, and that's all of us. We are not urged to come before God with our petitions when, like some sort of Eagle Scout, we've gone through enough hoops to certify ourselves as worthy of God's favor. Oh, no, no such thing as that. What all of us need, and we need it daily, what we need is mercy. Mercy is not giving to us what we deserve. And we need grace. Grace is giving to us more than we deserve. Both biblical terms testify to our lack of merit before a good God who loves us and provides for us anyway. Always watch, folks. Sometimes you'll hear things like this. You'll hear it in music. People singing some kind of song and not understanding what the Lord ever saw in me, that he redeemed me. Friends, he saw nothing in you. He saw nothing in me. There is nothing at all in any of us that would attract God to us and cause him to say, now that person I ought to save. No, we deserve nothing. But God in his grace and God in his mercy sent his son into the world to redeem us. He chose us before the foundations of the world that you and I might be holy and blameless in him, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the mysteries of his eternal purpose. Now this brings us to chapter 5. He continues talking about high priest. He's going to compare the high priest that the Hebrew people so valued to our high priest, our great high priest. For every high priest taken from among men, he says in verse 1, is appointed on behalf of men. They are appointed in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Still talking about the Aaronic order, the high priest after the order of Aaron, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, the high priest goes after the order of Aaron, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, not just for them, but also for himself. And no one takes that honor to be a high priest to himself, but he receives it when he is called of God, even as Aaron was. We'll stop right there. In the previous chapter, the author has summoned us to hold fast our confession. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest there could possibly be, whose ministry in our behalf is not in any earthly temple, but as a matter of fact, a ministry a high priest who passed into heaven itself as our mediator before God, what is important for these Hebrew Christians to grasp is that in every respect, in every respect, don't look back, Jesus Christ is superior by far in his person and work than any person or minister in heaven above or earth below. So here in chapter 5, our author makes this point with respect to the high priestly office, an office so sacred and revered by the Jews under the Old Covenant. And some of these Hebrew Christians were looking back with a little fondness of that. He shows that Christ is a high priest of a far, far higher order than the Aaronic priesthood. There's nothing to look back at with envy or nostalgia, is his point. In Christ, we have the best and we have the highest. A similar contemporary analogy might be, for example, a Roman Catholic who came to the knowledge of Christ. Outside the Catholic Church, they left behind the Roman Catholic Church with its pope, its cardinals, its bishops, its parish priests, its beautiful cathedrals, its art treasures, and ancient and elaborate rituals. In time, the simplicity of, say, a Protestant free church might begin to wear a little on such a person. They might begin to feel a little deprived of those external things. The old, once comfortable forms and offices might later begin to have a nostalgic attraction, becomes apparent after the novelty of the simple free church worship wears off, and they might begin to feel a little cheated. Not that they are in fact poor, you understand, but to the flesh all that pomp and circumstance has some appeal, and to the flesh having a visible head of the church one that you can eyeball in all of his glorious trappings in the Vatican, and all those very stately orders. Well, that can make them feel that way in the flesh, particularly if their spiritual growth is stunted, particularly if they're bone dry in their spiritual life. It's at that point when art starts to replace heart, and visible dignitaries have more appeal than invisible one. Well, that's roughly where these Hebrew Christians were. The mission of our author in this epistle is to persuade them not to look back as if they had cheated themselves by leaving the old rituals, institutions, and offices behind. He's saying, folks, folks, you are not poorer, but in fact in Christ in every way, you are vastly richer. Just as one today is vastly richer to have Christ as the head of the church than any Roman pope, just to have Christ as the bishop and shepherd of our souls is vastly superior to any human bishop. Just as to belong to the universal spiritual body of Christ is vastly superior than to belong to a visible worldwide Catholic church. Well, so the Hebrews were way ahead of the game as the idea. Having Christ as high priest of an immeasurably greater order than the high priest descended from Aaron. You get the analogy, I believe and it's a pretty good one. In verse 1, the author reviews the office work of the earthly high priest in the old Jewish religious economy. Strictly human priests were appointed by Old Testament statute on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. Their job was to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Their service, these Old Testament priests, was to stand in on behalf of ordinary people to be appointed mediators before God. Their business was to offer voluntary gifts and various prescribed sacrifices to God according to the Old Testament law. Why did people need a mediator or a middleman, as it were? Well, the lesson in this Old Covenant religious arrangement was to make the worshiper conscious of the fact that God was holy, that they themselves were defiled in His sight. To make them conscious of the fact that this defilement needed removal before they could approach God and find acceptance with Him. To this end, sacrifices for sins were requisite. For, as we are told later, without the shedding of blood, that is, without the atoning offerings to God, there is no remission of sins. That was the lesson. That was the pedagogy. And without the remission of sins, there is absolutely no approach for man to a holy God. Then and only then are our gifts to God acceptable. Otherwise, both the gifts and we are defiled. Well, verse 2, strictly and merely human high priests are indeed competent to represent ignorant and misguided worshipers. Gently. Here's why. They're in the same boat. The high priests themselves are beset with weakness. That is, they too are sinners, just as those for whom they need to mediate. So in verse 3, that moral and spiritual solidarity in sin with those whom they represent before God, means that those priests under the old order, they had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. Well, in this respect, they are greatly inferior to our Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest in heaven. For unlike those priests, Jesus is not a partner in our human defilement. He does not need, as they do, to offer any sacrifice for himself. And his sympathy for us as a high priest is not based on mutual failure or turpitude. His sympathy is based on shared temptation. Among men, no one can arrogate this priestly office to himself. It is not an honor that one can claim for himself, but it belongs only to those whom God appoints. That was the case in the instance of the sons of Aaron to whom God vested the high priestly office in the old economy. Now with all this, his readers would undoubtedly agree. This was common ground so far as the function and the establishment of the high priestly office was concerned. But now he's about to stake out in verse 5, new ground concerning Christ. Ground that should have been shared ground, but now needs to be clarified and reaffirmed. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.
0: The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Sure Just be sure the work gets in their hands.